This is Everyday Photography Every Day, where you get to listen in on a chat between a photographer, that's me, and a regular human. That's me. With an eye on making your pictures amazing. No technical stuff, no talk of gear or software, just photography for the love of it. We're sponsored by Neomodern.com, bringing concierge photo printing and framing to everyone with a smartphone. I'm Suzanne Fritz Hansen, enthusiastic iPhone picture taker. And I'm Michael Rubin, photographer, founder of Neomodern, and grumpy old man, and we're in San Francisco tonight. Welcome. Hi, Rubin. Hey, Suzanne. How are you? I'm good. Where are you? Uh, I'm in Phoenix, um, Phoenix, Arizona, at the Waldorf Astoria. It's actually the one that Frank Lloyd Wright, um, he designed the Spire, and then his students designed the rest of the hotel. It's really, really uh, interesting, unique property. Can you tell that like the kids did did the the architecture, or does it all feel very cohesive? It feels very cohesive. Hmm. Um, I uh, I'm actually there's a room on this floor that's called the uh, Biltmore History Ho- History Room, and so I think right after we do this podcast, I'm going to go and investigate. So I'll have more to report on the next episode. <laughs> do that T- and take some pictures. I'd like to see what that place looks like. Yeah, it's it's really I mean, lovely. I will. It's like taking pictures of architecture is like taking pictures of sculpture, right? It, it, like yeah. it's sometimes I feel weird taking a picture of it because I think, oh, my picture's so awesome. Look at that cool thing, and then I remember not someone thought this through so that it, when someone stands here, they'll see this great <laughs> thing. Like it's not me necessarily; it's their genius. I'm just sort of getting a. It's like a picture of the Monet, right? It's like, it's not really my great picture. It's their great thing. And I just have a nice document of it. Other times you can really bring something to the table and I don't know. I think there's, I think with spaces though, there's a lot more going on. Um, You don't necessarily have a singular focus. Whereas even with a sculpture, I think you're able to, it is, it's about how you're cropping it, what you're focusing on. Are you focusing on the thing in its entirety or the reflection or the space around it? So I think it's true. Even then there's room for interpretation. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll, I mean, I actually, I used to be much more sort of um, adamant that I didn't like taking pictures of art. It just seemed, it just seemed wrong. But I, I agree, you know, over time I've, I've come to feel like, oh no, you know, you can bring, you know, you can see your own thing there. So yeah, maybe, yeah. Uh, okay. It's all right. I mean, given our last show, we just talked about you going to the Monet exhibit. This is very yeah. <laughs> interesting to see really how far that you've come. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do. Okay. So we'll take pictures at Frank Lloyd Wright. I'd like to see that. And not just in a documentary well, sense. I'd like to see what you can pull out of your experience of seeing this cool building. There's a really, there's a lot with light and shadow. They've, um, there's kind of this beautiful tile pattern that was developed and then it's just uh, extrapolated and used all over. Sometimes it's created, it's tur- been turned into a more modern two-dimensional pattern by um, whoever the design team was that renovated the hotel. It just celebrated 95 years yesterday. Wow. I walked into the lobby at like midnight last night and um, and I, I was like, what is going on? Thinking it was a wedding or something and uh, the front desk person was like, we just turned 95 oh. today. So. Wow! <laughs> Happy birthday! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let the hotel know. Yeah, if these walls could talk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, how are you? Where are you? I'm good. I'm in Santa Cruz today. I'm, nice. Yeah, it's sort of my home. I mean, I'm, I'm I feel like a <laughs> Bay Area resident, but uh, I, you know, my kids grew up here, and I'm with my daughter this weekend, and nice. um, yeah, it's just such a great town. It really is fun. Um, so, what's on your mind? What you've been pondering well we you know we were talking about this a little bit ago and um sort of had it 
as one of the things I'd like to ask you more about. And mm-hmm. as you're sitting in a dark room right now, <laughs> yes. uh, I figured it would be the perfect segue to, I wanted to ask about more traditional um, methods or more traditional elements of photography from sort of back back when we used to really develop everything by hand, like there was no digital um, reference and kind of what your thoughts are on what we can learn from that process in our modern day photography. Wow, that's a, hmm. Um, Well, I, you know, I kind of miss the darkroom. I mean, I don't miss it from a photographic standpoint, but I kind of liked the the experience. I would just disappear, like my high school, my high school years um, in mm-hmm. particular were spent in a dark room. And uh, there was a dark room in our house that my mom had originally built um, with the guidance of Jerry Yulesman, who's this sort of fine art photographer who lived in town and was a friend of, of my parents. And his method was to use multiple easels. You know, he'd have a lot of easels. Do you even know what a dark room, have you been in a dark room? Uh, you know, I've never personally been in a dark room, but I, I've definitely seen them in movies and TV shows. <laughs> wow. Like they have, they have red light, right? Yeah, they, they have, have. Do you know um, why there's a red light? Um, I would guess because that just of the wavelength of red light would be the, the, like the lowest, but I'm not sure. Well, the, um, photographic papers are not sensitive to that wavelength of light. Film is. So you can't develop film with any light. It has to be absolutely, absolutely pitch black. Mm-hmm. And um, you can mimic that by putting your film in, in a bag with your hands in the bag and do stuff that way. It's very mm-hmm. tactile. And I always really like the tactile nature of being in pitch black and working. Yeah. It's, it's just, it, there's not many things you do, um, hobbies or jobs or anything, where you spend some part of your time in absolute pitch blackness and you work with your hands like that. Yeah. Um, but then when you get to printing on paper, you can turn on that red light and it's safe. It's photo safe. You know, let me, let me back up. Um, so yeah, so we had this dark room in our house. Dark room, you know, it's just a lot of toxic chemicals and a lot of fun for a kid, you know? Uh, <laughs> you, let me kind of t- talk you through the process. So you, when you shoot a roll of film, Right, you have this little tiny canister with wound up, uh, you know, three or four feet of light sensitive film, and so you, mm-hmm. when you're ready to develop it, you start by going to a dark room. You are in total darkness. You pop the, you break that thing open, and you literally it's like a can opener. You break it open, you pull mm-hmm. the film out, and you have this kind of funny spindle that you wrap it around. Now, the film can't touch itself. I mean, it can bump into itself while you're doing this, but you're you're threading it into this device so that when chemicals flow over it, they evenly flow. If it's touching mm-hmm. somewhere, um, chemicals won't hit it and it'll be screwed up. So and you're the, in the dark. The chemicals are going to stop the development process? Is that well, why you're, you're putting the... Yeah, you're pouring... Uh, the film is uh, silver sensitive. It's like silver halide. I, I don't want to get into the chemistry, mm-hmm. but you... Pour in, like you, you wrap it on the spindle, you put it in a canister, you seal the canister up, and it has kind of a special light-sensitive opening that you can pour mm-hmm. things into without getting light in, and you pour in a, a concoction of developer, and it, uh, and it's time, it's time-sensitive and temperature-sensitive, and 
you've got to guess, you know, um, you know, it's 78 degrees, so I'm going to do this for eight minutes. I'm going to have the chemicals on there. I need to have the, the chemicals kind of flowing over the film um, gently. You don't want to shake it, but you also want it in motion. So you're kind of mm-hmm. gently agitating this canister maybe every... 30 seconds or every minute you kind of agit you rotate it in your hands a little bit and then you put it back down and get how the big bubbles. is this canister like a coffee can it's uh, like a thermos it kind of looks like a thermos and you could have a okay. mu- multiplicity of, of rolls of film on different little spindles in this thing uh but it's it's you know and honestly that was my favorite part or that was a a, a favorite part of this process because wrapping it on the spindle is something you just get really good at and it's a fun thing to be kind of good at to perfectly mm-hmm. do it easily uh and then you put it, it in the in the dark in that the is dark. one of the things that you're doing in the total darkness completely yeah um then you do the chemicals on there which develop it and then you have to stop them from developing it before they overdevelop it so now that you've got your timing right you pour off the chemicals you pour in like water to rinse off the chemicals then you pour in a fixer that will f- kind of stop it from being light sensitive anymore. What happens when you overdevelop it? What does that look like? Well, um, well, the, remember it's a negative on this film, and so it would kind of take off more and more of the silver. So you're making things dark, like they would be. They're going from being completely opaque. The chemistry makes areas that have been hit by light. Um, fix and areas that have not been hit by light the chemicals will it will wash off the silver so it becomes clear mm-hmm. and so l- later when you reverse it those areas <coughs> become dark anyway um overdeveloping just makes it harder to get a good picture out of it it just gets a little bit too dark probably um so then it's fixed and you want to you pull it out of the canister, you hang it up on a clothesline and hopefully with no dust around and let that thing dry organically. And if you are in the journalism business where someone is waiting for those pictures and you've just run in from the fire and you've developed them as quickly as you can, and that might be 20 or 30 minutes later, they're now hanging there wet. People will pull out a clothes dryer, like a hair dryer, and mm-hmm. just try to dry it. It's not good for it. You can also speed up the time by increasing the temperature, um, which makes it grainier, but it gets it done faster. So sometimes mm-hmm. you see journalistic photos are often very grainy for lots of reasons, but one reason is sometimes they've used a, a, a high temperature to, to make this thing. Hmm. Uh, so now you have negative. Like you're not even done. You're just getting going. You've got your negatives there. And um, gosh, what do you do next? Now, well, okay. Now you can cut it up. And into little strips that you can use, and you put it into an enlarger, which is just a projector. It has a, a light bulb at the top and, and a carrier for the negative, and it projects down on an easel on a on a surface. And the room is red at this point. So yeah, you, now you, you can be red. Now, now the actually the room is light. You can turn on the light in the room first, kind of get yourself reorganized, and. Um, but when you're ready to print and pull out the paper, yeah, you're going to turn the lights back off, turn on the red light this time, and you can pull out a, a sheet of, of photosensitive Roxanne. paper. Just kidding. <laughs> do you know that song? I do know you the song. And you think about it every time you go into a dark room, probably, it's just because you turn on the red light. 
Uh, I don't think that's what he was referring to. If you want I don't the truth. think so, but no. I just made me think of it. Okay, keep going. I'm, li- I'm fully listening. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sure you are. I'm trying to decide. Like, I haven't done this in a, more than a decade, too. I mean, there are people who probably still do this. It's harder and harder to get all the supplies. Yeah. You know, even if you've got film, even if you build the darkroom, I mean, you have to go find your, your I don't remember what it's called, D76 I think is like is the chemical you use to that you mix up with, you know, and, and you get it in powder form. You got to mix that stuff up. I mean, it's a it's a chemistry project. You're in a room, yeah. a bathroom, or a room in your house or something that has to be light controlled and have running water and no dust and mm-hmm. you know it's a thing, right? It's a, and it's super fun. But now you um, have the, the the negative. You put it in the carrier. You shine it down on a on a maybe a piece of paper. You get your focus as sharp as you you can and mm-hmm. now you and and that enlarger is connected to a timer and so now i can turn off the lights turn on the red light put the paper under the easel and get it kind of in the right spot and i turn on the enlarger to project onto the paper can you kind Bye. of picture that and mm-hmm. uh you don't know how long to project it like how long Right, so you might want to do a test of some kind. You make various sorts of test strips where I expose a strip of it for one second, and then a, a, and then maybe another strip for two seconds, and and I pick a range of time. So now I develop this first piece of paper, and I can see different exposures of this image and try to decide what's the right exposure for the various parts. So when you develop, when you did your um, application, your college application, you took the picture on a camera first, and then you just were developing it. You put like a photo, um, a light sensitive paint or something on your actual application and use that as your photo paper to develop. Correct. You can buy, it's not as common, but certainly back in the eighties, I was more able to, even then it wasn't super common, but I was able to go get a jar of photo emulsion. Mm -hmm. It's it's liquid, it's kind of goopy emulsion and you can spread it onto anything, let it dry and then you can shoot onto it and treat it just like it was um, <clears throat> paper, you know, or like a photo paper. Uh, and and quality suffers, you know. I'll be honest; it's not perfectly even, and uh, and mistakes were made. But it's you know, you get the idea, right? Um, so now that you have you kind of an idea of how much exposure to put on the paper, you and remember, different parts of your image are going to need different exposures very likely. So there's this kind of dance you do of burning and dodging. You you have determined that um, the face in the photo needs six seconds, but the clothes need four seconds and the sky needs 12 seconds. Mm-hmm. And it's not uh, science. You kind of waving your hands under between the easel and the, uh, between the, uh, and the light shining down and the paper where I'm dodging out the time. I set the exposure. This is like a visual, like theremin, basically. It looks. You look kind of. I also think of. um, There's a thing you do in in film sound called foley, where they're watching the movie on foley. The person who does it is like a foley dancer. It's named for a guy, and they stand in front of a screen and they watch the movie, and they've got all these things in front of them, uh, shoes and and bags of rice and stuff, and they're making the sounds you hear in the movie in sync with what they're seeing. And it's cool to watch them. They're kind of dancing around, making these sounds and recording it. And, and they're really like called a Foley dancer? It's a Foley dancer, yeah. It's a oh, Foley, I love that yeah. term. There's many names for them. But yeah, they're, I, I like to call them Foley dancers. And that's what I feel like in, in a darkroom where you're kind of moving your hands and playing with the time. It's, a, it's an active 
kind of thing to be doing. And every time I make another print, it's another performance of it. I mean, I don't think Ansel Adams was um, just being metaphorical to say that the negative is the is the um, score and the print is the performance of that score. It is literally a performance in many respects. Every time you make a print, it's a little bit different. Now, clearly, if the entire image gets the exact same exposure, it's pretty easy to make 10 of them that are almost identical. But in complicated negatives that have lots of parts that need different exposures, of which Ansel Adams was famous, and he, mm-hmm. he came up with a system, which he called the zone system, to make sure an image has the full range of exposures where things are black and dark and things are very white and you have this gradient between them. So you have parts of the image at every kind of level of that, that yeah. you get that way by this performance of do- burning and dodging to get each part of the picture just the right exposure for what it is. Does that and make sense? And so someone like a Foley dancer, they would have um, kind of all these different tools in front of them that they could use. Yes. Would, does a photographer ever have like cutouts or besides just their hands, do they ever have any tools like a jig or something that they're able to use to um, burn and dodge? Um, it wouldn't be a jig because um, partly because for the most part, you don't want a hard line. You don't want something to mm-hmm. sit still because it will create a hard line in the exposure so it's always sort of a little bit of emotion you can do it very well with your hands yes totally people have peacock cut feather of, what i'm just kidding peacock feather i don't know <laughs> no no no. I, I, it's people use all kinds of things uh, they would might have a piece of glass with uh, with um you know gel on it or something that creates a sort oh. of a fuzzy look they might have mm-hmm. gauzy cloths that they create different effects they would have pieces of, of black cardboard that, you know, you can hold in your hand. You might cut a shape out and sort of wiggle wiggle it a little. you got to move it a little bit so it's not a hard line, but maybe you're not moving it very much and, yeah. and so on. It's, it's an interesting process. It's kind of uh, – you can watch it because it's happening with the red light on in there. Mm-hmm. But again, once you get it right and you get a good print, you got to do it again for the next print, right? So if you're making yeah. a, a few – this is one of the reasons why even you know famous photographers, when they printed 10 of something, they're 10 different looking pictures. One of them might be the one that is just amazing. He just nailed it. And there's another one that's just not quite as good. This guy just didn't get as much light, but it was good enough. And he didn't want to, you know, sometimes they're perfectionists and they won't let anything go out that isn't perfect. And sometimes there's just a, a little bit of a range. You know what I mean? So as a collector, is it like, oh, this Ansel Adams seven out of the ten, that's the really valuable one, but the you know three out of the ten, that was you know it's not as valuable. Is um, it? Is it ever? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that's another thing about the prints being um, objects, like they're very specific. Ansel printed ten of something. It's not just that this is the image of I don't know Moonrise Hernandez. Um, it is the ones he did on September 17th, 1970, when he went into the darkroom with this kind of paper, he did 10 and everyone knows he did 10 that day. And two of them were just the classic ones. One was, one was the one that was shown at the museum and one was bought by this person. And then these four, he sold slowly over years. And people know the pedigree of every print that came out of that session. And then 10 years later, you know, um, 
Perkle Jones was printing that picture for him, and he had taught him how to print it, and he needed a hundred for something, and so Perkle did these, and Perkle had a little more patience than Ansel did, maybe, or he was his his yeah. student, and so he did it very carefully, and these pictures are very well respected, and they're different. They're not the ones that Ansel did, but maybe he did them all on this giant size piece of paper, and so they're yeah. different ones, and so as a collector. People are very aware of which print. It's not just the image. It's how good a print was it? Which one yeah. was it? Who owned that one? Was that the one that was in the museum? Or is that the one that he kind of rejected, but later he gave to his niece and then she sold it at an auction? You know, I mean, you just don't mm -hmm. know. Um, it, it, and so people who just have an image on their wall, if they're collectors, they probably know the pedigree of that image also. Right. And if you're a collector, you might want a specific one. I, I mentioned that... Um, our, one of our favorite pictures, which we actually um, in our family no longer own, we, we finally sold it, but it was a Robert Frank called The City of London um, or, or The Banker. And mm -hmm. it uh, certainly if you ask everyone in our family, it was our favorite picture in our collection. <laughs> I think we loved it. Um, but it was very valuable and it seemed weird to own something quite that valuable. And so we sold it m many years ago. Um, but it was valuable because it just for whatever reason, Robert Frank printed this on this strange paper and it made it mm. very, very warm and luscious in a way that other prints just weren't as much. And yeah. it was just like people who knew photography and knew this image wanted that one. Yeah. So, got it. it. So, you know, and, and, um, you know, is that why your family loved it so much because it was so luscious? Well, you know, as a, Growing up with it, I didn't really think much of it. I just I liked the image. Later, came to understand something more about its its <clears throat> you know history and and why it was so unusual. We also had a letter, you know, some notes with Robert Frank about it because we were inquiring why this was different, and he had written some stuff on the back of it, and we were kind of curious what he was talking about. And so there's it, it's also nice if you got sort of this background people liked having more of that it's again not just the image it's the story of that image of that of print course. yeah um you know we didn't finish the, kind of some of the process once you've gone through this entire dance mm -hmm. you now have this blank white sheet of paper sitting there you're in the red light and you have three trays on a table and one of, and just sort of the same with the film but now for the paper you've got developer and you put it in the developer and you swish it around. And this is the most magical part of photography, a lot of people will say. It goes from this white sheet to suddenly this image emerges on it. And it can happen in seconds. It just kind of emerges. Now, it's not done in seconds. It might take uh, a minute sitting in the developer to be fully. You're in the dark. It's hard to really know. So you just got to kind of let it sit there for a while. And you have tongs. But of course, this developer is, it's got to be super toxic. I grew up with that. I think that's why I'm, you know, I look like I do maybe. All my clothes <laughs> through high school have hand marks on my pants and shirt where I would wipe my hands on my pants and the developer would stain them over time. And I have these sort of dectal stains on things. Uh, you gotta, you know, you're supposed to wear the proper things. And nowadays, maybe they make you wear gloves. I wasn't wearing gloves. I was just freaking, I had tongs, but you know, your hands yeah. are in it. Um, then you drop it in water to kind of stop it, you know, from mm -hmm. developing more. And then you put it in fixer. 
So it, it you know, again, another chemical that stops it from being light sensitive. You can are turn off the same chemicals. This the exact same developer, or the exact same fixer, or are they different for the negative and for the photo paper? Um, I would say that um, they're different concentrations of some of these. Some of them are the same and some are different, uh, but you mix them up differently. It would just be more strong maybe for film and weaker for paper. Or There's instructions on these bottles. You look at them and they'll say, for paper, mix it one to seven with water. You know, Got and, it. And so so for you're not like pouring what you have in the, in the spindle thermos. You're not pouring that into the bucket of developer when you're done it's just yes going somewhere else okay. you know there was this funny time during high school where i had read in i was taking chemistry in like high school chemistry and found out a little more about the actual chemistry of the silver halide and what's going on and realized that when i pour the 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 developer off of the the film the silver is in the developer and i got yeah. this kind of crazy notion that I could extract the silver back out of it, which you can do. And so yeah. I started collecting jugs of my used developer and was trying to reclaim, using other chemicals to reclaim it back into silver, which I did a little oh, bit. Wow. You, you could make little clumps of silver. It was, uh, you know, typical high school. I thought I might become a millionaire st taking all the silver back off of the film. <laughs> you, uh, it didn't really work. It didn't. It's like taking the gold from uh, computer parts. Have you seen that? It's exactly what Tokyo, Tokyo Olympics are doing. They are going to, they're, they've had all these um, old electronics donated and they're pulling the gold from it. And that's what the gold medals are going to be made of. Really? Yes. That's awesome. That's really funny. Uh, okay. So I, I didn't, that didn't work for me. Uh, the silver thing extraction didn't work. But when you're <clears> done, you, again, you wash this well in, you know, it's some sort of, I have a big, I had kind of like a washing machine-y thing that was in the dark room, a, a tank that rotated. And then when they come out of that, you hang them up on a clothesline and they drip dry. Got and it. that's photography. And, and it's, you know, all of that takes a lot of time, a lot of care. And remember, uh, you and you really can't judge whether it really came out good until it's dry. Because when it's wet, it's a little darker. And when you're in the dark room, it's a little the light isn't right. And so think of all the work that you've done to get a print, an image out of what yeah. you shot. Well, it really harkens back to, I mean, your phrase uh, last week of making something. And yeah. like, it really is making something. It is with your hands. It is with your body. It is with, yeah. you know, your, yeah. your dancing ability. Um, that it, it's, it's interesting. It is so different now. What would you say it would be your kind of your lesson that we can learn because we, we don't do this these days. So what would you say are some of the lessons from that process that you take into your photography or your retouching or your and I know you're not big on, on retouching, but I just mean right. like you're burning and dodging or, or whatever. Yeah, well, I guess the things that <clears throat> I take away from it, I haven't really thought about this much, but this weird, weird sort of ethos I have that I'm allowed to do certain types of retouching in Photoshop or in Lightroom, but other things I don't think are, quote, fair. It's like, if I could have done it in a darkroom, like burning and dodging and fixing the exposures and cropping and stuff like that, that's what photography is to me. And so that all seems le like legitimate work to do. It's the only work you have left. <laughs> um, but... And the chemistry, while fun and, and burning and dodging with your hands is an art form and also enjoyable, um, I'm not wed to exactly how you do it, just that it, that you're doing, that it's getting done somehow. In the same way that I don't care what kind of camera someone uses. No one right. cares in photography what, I mean, not no one, but I don't care in photography what 
the actual device of capture was. As long mm-hmm. as the end result is an image that you've kind of select created and selected, yeah, you could have used a pinhole camera, it could use a Hasselblad, it could have been anything. So I don't get, when things went digital, I didn't really care, but I still felt that in the post-production process, I only wanted to be kind of burning and dodging and cropping and doing that stuff. And to actually assemble things and fix things, take out objects and all that kind of stuff, I don't know, it got into a gray zone. Remember, I you know, I, I was schooled by Jerry Yulesman, who would do... That's all he would do is this surreal manufacturing of images. And right. at, at, at one level, I mean, it's a photographic art, but I'm not sure it's photography in the sense of Cartier-Bresson's photography. It's not about capturing a moment. He's just an illustrator using photographic images, making these surreal, cool-looking things. So when he would do this, he would actually cut up the negatives, paste them together, and then project them no, onto the no, paper? No, no, How would no. he do it? He did it, um, and again, this is kind of how I, I learned photography, is that he would have a, a bunch of different easels in the darkroom at one time, and he'd put a different negative in each easel, and he'd have, start with like a sheet of paper, and he'd project the negative onto the paper, and he would uh, see, you know, okay, I just want the bird from this image. So I'm going to create kind of a mask. I'm going to have a piece of paper with a hole cut out of it, and so when I shine that negative onto a piece of paper, I'm just shining the bird part through, through, my, through the hole. And I'll move the hole around so it's not a hard edge, but I'll make yeah. a fuzzy area around the bird. Then I'll move this piece wow. of paper to another easel where I'll shoot the sky. And there, um, maybe I don't care about burning. I don't ha- need to block out where the bird was because the sky is very light and the bird was dark, so it won't be a problem. And he was really good. He is really good at see- looking at images and figuring out how they might go together, how you could put these pieces. And so it's That's not amazing. Photoshop, but it's that it's that process of picking and choosing parts of this and seamlessly merging them together. So every image you make is a is a very unique creation. And once you've got like the five easels set up and like this easel needs six seconds of the bird and this sec- easel needs 40 seconds of the sky and then this, you know what I mean? Can you imagine yeah. that? You're limited by how many easels you have because they're kind of fixed. But he had, I think, six or eight in his dark room. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had three in our dark room, so I was a little more limited. And then an easel isn't like a traditional easel that you would see on a painter where it's holding it vertically. It's an easel. It's, it's a different flat. term that holds it flat. Yeah, okay. it's an easel that's flat underneath of an enlarger, which is projecting yep. down. Um, Got it. If I remember, and I don't, I don't remember remember this for sure, but I think. Many photographers, and Ansel included, if you're making a big image, you're not projecting down onto the easel on the table. You're projecting on the wall. You're putting the, the paper sideways on, like, on a wall, and you're projecting that way on it. Um, okay. Remember, the farther you get from the, 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 the image is from the paper, the more blurry it gets. Right, mm-hmm. you have the sort of you have you need a lot more light, and it's a little less sharp, and so there's a trade-off between making something really big and losing some of its crispness. Ansel Adams would shoot um, generally with an eight by ten view camera, a camera whose negatives were eight by ten inches. So when you mm-hmm. see an Ansel Adams image that's eight by ten, that's a contact print. He's set the negative on the paper and turned on the light. So it wow. gets, so it gets, an, uh, you can still dodge the light a little bit, but it's a, a different kind of, it's super sharp. It's as sharp as it can get mm-hmm. because of course there's zero space between the, the two things. But on the other hand, 
it's, uh, you know, you want a bigger picture than eight by 10, you got to kind of do something with this. And that, so you'll see giant Ansel Adams prints and they're gorgeous, but they're also meant to be viewed kind of from a little bit of a distance. They're, they aren't, don't have the clarity of the contact prints that he did. And that's where the term contact sheet comes from, because you're actually co- putting the negatives in like directly onto the paper. Exactly. I didn't know that. You know, that was the history of that word. Yeah. You would take those negatives. Usually once you've finished and they're dry, you'd cut them into strips of about five and slide them into these kind of clear plastic carriers and so that and label it. You know, this is roll 27 or roll 7000 mm-hmm. or whatever. And then you would take it and you put it on a piece of paper, maybe put a piece of glass over it to hold it flat, turn on the light. It's it's just a crude thing so you can see what you got in positive. Right. right? And that is exactly, that's a contact print. And now you develop that and label it the same as the thing. And if you looked at Jerry Yulesman's, um workspaces, he's got his contact prints all over the tables because he's just kind of milling around through them all the time. He doesn't care. The negatives are organized, but the, pr- the contacts are all over the place. And he just serendipitously would bump into it like, oh, look, that's a cool thing. I wonder if I could find a piece of water that does... Th-. And he'd look through another like thing. like your sister, It's right? like my sister. Yeah, I mean, and she learned, she learned from him too, right? Yeah. We were all in kind that's of... That's cool. What about... Um, so Jerry would only do... There's not like multiple prints of his work, right? It's just one of one every time? Well, he'd make one at a time and different versions. Uh, if he made a bunch of them, they would vary often a little more than... Uh, other photographers' works would vary because each one is much more of a performance. Um, so sometimes he would make things, he'd make one and he didn't like it that much or it was too hard to do or he'd make five and he's burnt out. And once he disassembles the setup, it was it's very hard to recreate it exactly. I, he has detailed notes. And so, again, I learned in the darkroom to have this notebook where I explain how I made the picture so I know what the negatives are, what the exposures are for each one, the height of the easel a little bit, just so I can mm-hmm. kind of put it back together if I need to. But it's for Yulesman's pictures, it's re- if you have a print, it very much matters which one. Like he just didn't make as many. And uh, I would say that in our collection, we have a lot of unmounted, unmatted Yulesman's where he would he was explaining something. He'd printed in the darkroom. It had 10 or six pieces to it. Look at it and feel like, nah, it's not as good. If I change the bird into a flower, it's better. So I only made one of the bird one and kind of rejected it. But we have tons of these. Like he would just, yeah. you know, he would just like, we'd keep them, you know. It's almost like a shot of his notebook would have been the equivalent of like a painter's palette. You know, what are, what are the colors that they used to, to remix uh, or that they would have had to mix together to make that Monet, for example. Whereas for Jerry, it's like these detailed notes are the things that he's able to, you know, those are those are his like raw ideas that he's using to capture what this is. Like, what is the time in here? What are the the raw elements? Uh, interesting. I, I don't, I'm not a painter, so I don't really know. I don't know how painters come back to something. I guess you have they to... Don't. I just always thought it'd be such an interesting, um, such an interesting thing if, if painters had, I mean, obviously you reuse your palette, um, Uh but I always thought it'd be so interesting if they would be able to display the palette, um, (laughs) to the the actual painting. It's not something that's done. I just always thought it would be so nice. Uh, yeah, it would be cool. Yeah. I didn't mean to like completely derail us. I'm I'm really enjoying this conversation. I I find it fascinating. We probably should Um, wind it down, but I mean... (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I don't work in the darkroom anymore. I'm. You asked what what I, my takeaway is now that I'm digital, and one is I don't miss. I don't miss the pictures I made. I just wasn't that good in a darkroom. It took so much patience and so much labor to make an image. And if the exposures weren't right, you'd have to really, you'd spend all day on a picture. Remember, you only shot 36 on a roll, so you really had very few to choose from in many cases. And I'd say that now that I'm digital, I still try to not shoot overshoot something. It just smacks of of hoping you get a picture and not, it doesn't feel as purposeful to me. I, yeah. I, I, I really love it. I mean, I, I get it. If you're a photographer shooting something special, someone's jumping off of something and you really want to get that just perfect thing, you might use a, you know, a motor, it would have been a motor wind back in the old days, but you shoot a, a ton of pictures very quickly, like a video, and then you go through right. them and find the one that is exactly perfect. And that's, that's great. Again, that's hunting with a shotgun, and it's, sometimes it's fun. People for hunters, I guess they go out with mm. a rifle or a bow and arrow. It's just a different experience. Can I get that same shot this way? And if you're a photographer and people collect you, maybe they like that. Like that guy's good at getting that shot, even though he's shooting on film or shooting. He, he's not yeah. shooting that way in a studio. And all those things matter. All those things matter. So, so I like bringing that to my photography, where I'm not shooting a lot. I find that the work of going through all the pictures is very laborious and not as fun. Mm-hmm. And um, I also feel like I have these rules about post-production that come came from what I can do in a dark room and not just anything that you can do. Like I, I just want to, I, I think the constraint is fine. It's fun for me. I'm, it's familiar. Yeah. Those are probably my biggest. And I, again, I think I'm a way better photographer out of the dark room. You know, for the first many years of my picture taking, I, I would do straight shots, but everything I shot was generally thinking about whether there was a cool element I might use in my other work. And if you look at, at Yulesman's stuff, you see that, and Maggie Taylor, her stuff. That, like uh, A lot of photographers who work in Photoshop who are excellent illustrators, excellent at compositing pieces together, when they shoot, they are certainly thinking about that. But now I've moved into a place where I like I'm much more in the Magnum photography, Cartier-Bresson school, Elliot Erwitt, where I'm just trying to see what I can get by going out. Yeah. And, and and it's not so much about the darkroom work anymore. It's much more about the experience of taking the pictures. Well, I, I think I think what's really wonderful about um, about kind of the digitization of where we are now is that we, it's democratized this. We're not spending time in, in the dark room. We don't all have access to the dark room. And, and I think what you said about yourself improving, not be as a photographer, not having to be in the dark room, I think it gives hope to all of us. And I feel like that's what this podcast, Everyday Photography Every Day, is also helping us do, is become better um, in the new wave of this democratized um, art form. Oh, yeah. I mean, I... I- of course, I agree. I, I, it's wonderful that people don't have to build a dark room and they do get to shoot a bunch of pictures and there's no cost to that. And I don't think that there's a nostalgic element. I don't think they need to know what it used to be. I just personally, I'm glad that people can take a picture, great quality, and with relatively little effort, share it with their friends, keep it for their family, <laughs> put it, Me whatever. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Print it, hang it on the wall. Yeah. Well, Thank you all for listening. Our show is recorded and usually produced in San Francisco. Today we are in Phoenix and in Santa Cruz. We are sponsored by Neomodern.com. 
please uh, concierge style photo finishing and printing to transform your iPhone photos into frameable art. Go to neomodern.com slash podcast to see our show notes, photos, and upcoming events. Leave reviews and ratings and questions on iTunes, and don't forget to subscribe. Thank you to jazz pianist Mitchell Foreman for our incredible theme music. We appreciate your attention and hope we've given you some things to think about. So until next time.